Hello, my name is Meredith Smith. I am a program coordinator at the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at Columbia University's Earth Institute, managing their fellowship program. And AC4 has this program that they sponsor with WKCR that's called Stories from the Leading Edge. And I'm pleased to do the interview this month with our selected interviewee who's bringing in a bunch of experience in the field of peace, conflict, and nonviolence. And pleased to introduce you to Dr. Jill Strauss. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm going to give you a little background about Jill Strauss. She teaches conflict resolution and communications at the borough of Manhattan Community College. And prior to this, she was an adjunct professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Dispute Resolution. Professor Strauss was the 2012-2013 Fulbright Research Chair in North American Society and Culture at Concordia University, Montreal. Her research involves restorative practices and the visual interpretation of narrative and difficult histories. Professor Strauss completed her doctorate studies at the University of Ulster in Northern Ireland, and she also has a Master's of Education from Teachers College with a focus on peace education and conflict resolution. Welcome to the show, Professor Strauss. And let's start off just um, learning a little bit more about your background. So how did you get into the field of conflict resolution and this intersection of arts and conflict resolution? Thanks. I'm sorry about my voice. It's um, crazy weather we've we've been having, and I'm a little bit hoarse. But I'm so glad that we're able to to move this forward anyway to have this interview. I'm really flattered to have been asked. Um, so yeah, so I went to art school. Um, I have very long fingers, and my mother said, "You're going to be an artist." I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and so I went to art school. I went to music and art high school. Uh, went to uh, Purchase College. Um, was planning on going to being in the arts. Things happen. Life goes on. Um, and then through a series of other jobs, I ended up working for an organization, finding out about, volunteering for, and then working for an organization called American Friends of Neve Shalom, Muhatta Salam, which in English means... Um, it's Arabic and Hebrew for Oasis of Peace. It's a village in, in Israel where Arabs and Jews have chosen to live together. Um, and they, it, um, they educate their children together in an intentional uh, program. They have a school for peace um, uh, for adults that brings people from around the world together to, um, to learn conf about conflict and how to resolve conflict. Um, I think that these are... And, these are incredibly brave people, what they are trying to achieve. And um, sometimes it's a matter of, especially as things keep going on there badly, um, I'll say, it's an achievement just to continue to survive right? mm. and, and to continue this community as they have so successfully. Uh, so I am a great admirer of them. And I thought, well, if they can do it, I've got to at least try, mm. <laughs> try something. So uh, long story short, that's what brought me to uh, Teachers College. At that time, and still one of the few peace education programs in the country, I also started taking uh, my conflict resolution classes, my elective courses at ICCCR, which mm. is what AC4 comes out of, um, if I'm not mistaken. 
So then I went on after graduating and uh, worked for some nonprofits. But, you know, I always had in the back of my mind um, uh, an interfaith nonprofits, I'll also say that. You know, so I was working on, um, it's a funny word, coexistence, but this idea that how can people of different religions and um, live together and and work together. And I do think that New York is an example of that. Mm. Um, and we were making great progress, great strides um, with the, within the Muslim Jewish communities here in New York until 9-11. And then it was a lot of backtracking and starting from scratch. A lot fell apart. Um, sadly, maybe that wasn't the best choice of words, right, if you think about that buildings fell down and people died. But I still had, you know, my, my art training in, in my background, my love of, of art and, and theater, music, dance, um, and that was still there. And what I, was alert, what I learned um, in peace education in particular, but it comes up also in, in conflict resolution, um, was about imagination, the importance, mm. the value of imagination and imagining alternatives. Um, and that without that, we, how can we move from the systemic violence that we live with how can we imagine, we have, to, there's no other word, right, except imagine or envision, right? Um, we have to be able to do that in order to move towards that. Mm. Um, and so for, so thinking about that and, and, and that making so much sense to me. So, yes, yeah, so we need the skills. We need skills, we need knowledge, we need to practice um, awareness, absolutely, but we, but that idea about imagination and perspective taking and the ability to imagine somebody else's worldview, somebody else's experience. Um, Just to repeat what I'm hearing, that this ability to imagine and see alternatives is a crucial element in conflict resolution. Is yes. that what you're saying? Where you know where else is that you know, and it's in the arts. Right? The arts is where we encourage people to imagine and to be creative and to experiment, um, to think out of, you know, and, and, and so I thought, well, maybe that's a place where I can bring my, my, my current interests and passions and my previous, my, you know, my, what I also loved and mm. what I had studied and bring those two together. Oh, it reminds me so much of Maxine Green's work. She has written on releasing the imagination and actually I think it's from her other book The Dialectic of Freedom that says to break the cotton wool of habit of mere routine we need to look for openings and that finding such openings is to discover new possibilities and that is how we find freedom well, and then there's also Lederach, um, John Paul Lederach has um, the um, Art of Moral Imagination. I'm not sure if I'm getting the title exactly right, but um, and he's written also on music as well, and the, and the world. So he's also was looking at the arts. And interestingly, speaking of um, John Paul, um, I was fortunate to take a course with him at the Summer Peace Building Institute at Eastern Mennonite University, right before I went to Northern Ireland for my PhD, and. That was on, on his book, The Moral Imagination. It was uh, a great two weeks with him, and I actually had the privilege of sitting, of being with him. We, he would take us on different field trips, especially mm. in the evenings for this course. And um, 
uh, you would we would book sort of make like make dates with him. I think that's a nicer way to say it. we would make dates with him if we wanted to have a little bit of one on one time mm. with the man. And um, so I got that opportunity. I was sitting in the front seat of his, the the van that he had rented or the pickup, whatever it was. Maybe it was a pickup. And um, and I was going on and on and on about my thesis ideas. And he was listening. And then at one point, I guess it was, I'm going to hope that it was at a stoplight. He turned to me and he said, oh, this is what you want to do. <laughs> and I am grateful for, to John Paul Lederach for my, my main thesis question. Which was? Which was, um, you want to find out if uh, the parties involved in conflict are too hurt or and or traumatized to hear the other story. Can they see it? and feel empathy. You know, normally we, t um, especially in conflict, the conflict resolution, conflict theory, and with storytelling, we talk about, excuse the pun, we talk about um, how we tell the story and we, mm. and with the intention that, that our listeners can, can experience and understand and feel empathy for, for our experience. But what if that's not possible. You know, what if we, sh we shut out the other, mm. shut out sound-wise the other? And we do that. We all do that. We, yeah. shut, we shut out and we shut down. But it's much harder to do that with our, with our eyes, right? You, so can, can the arts support or facilitate, might be a better word, right, um, that that our ears can maybe cannot do. And, and that's okay, right? Because our, all of our, our senses work together, right? Now, right. Um, to, to complete a whole. And then at the same time, um, thinking about how the arts can evoke a lot of emotion, a lot more emotion without language, um, that I think is, it can also be effective. So that, that's where I was going with that initially. Great. And so to speak about a specific project of yours, mm -hmm. you had had developed and led a project um, that used storytelling and visual arts for empathy and this importance that you're talking about of telling a story and hearing a story and how can that happen in a, in a place when people are shut off and not listening to the other. I would love to hear more about how you informed your understanding of this, um, of the context in which you entered when you did this project in Northern Ireland with an intergenerational group of Catholics and Protestants? Yeah, so it's um, a good question. In some ways, I was a really good researcher, and in some ways, I was a really bad researcher. <laughs> I learned, learned the hard way. Um, so I was very prepared in terms of my theory, I was not so prepared in terms of the context that I was entering into. I initially went to Northern Ireland by accident. That's how I tell the story. Peace Boat is a Japanese NGO mm. uh, that was started um, by, by some Japanese young people, I, I want to say in the 80s. Um, they, were, they were angry because the Japanese government was trying to take Japanese culpability for World War II atrocities out of the Japanese high school textbooks. So they chartered, initially they chartered a fishing boat, and they, they visited, uh, they went to Korea, they went to China, they went to the Philippines, and they interviewed people who had been, a, who had been 
adversely affected by the Japanese military, mm. including comfort women, the Japanese comfort women. And f- out of that experience, there is now an, N- an NGO, a non-governmental organization called Peace Boat. And this, it's a cruise ship, and they go around the world. And um, when they dock, they visit social justice, um, peace and conflict projects around the world. So, I mean, what a tour, right? And for several years, when I was working for some community-based organizations and NGOs here in New York, we would host groups from the ship. Mm. My youth projects, my interfaith youth projects, we would host groups from the ship. And that was always great fun and great for the young people. And, and, great, and I think the, the, the Japanese guests were, and international guests were always excited. And so it was a wonderful thing. So once in 2004, I was invited on the ship to teach, uh, to present on um, grassroots projects, uh, peace projects in response to 9-11, and also to talk about, uh, then to do some peace education workshops. And that was a great experience. Part of that time that I was on the ship, we went to Northern Ireland. That's how I went to Northern Ireland, by accident. And I took a tour, one of the tours, with one of the groups, and I was so impressed by what was happening at the grassroots level. So impressed by what people were doing. Of their own initiative because they wanted change. They wanted something different. Um, and they wanted it for their children. I, w- I don't know why I'm putting it in the past tense. That hasn't changed. They want it for their children. Mm. And that's for the best reasons. You want to talk about sustainability? That's sustainability. That's love, right? That's what will make change. So we visited these grassroots groups, but then we also um, had uh, a meeting with some government representatives from at that time, the three different parties. So this is prior, this, is, this was 2004. So just to give some context, this is after the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, but this is also before the 2008, um, when, when Northern Ireland created its own government, separate from Britain. So this was a major transitional period. Um, they were bickering. <laughs> the government representatives were bickering in front of these invited, this international group of invited guests. And I thought, how, right. So, you know, this really has to be happening at all the levels. It can't just be happening at the grassroots and not at the governmental level, or just at the government and not at the grassroots, right? This has to be happening at all the levels to make a difference. Now, of course, that was 2004. That was one instance. Um, Everything at all levels has moved dramatically since that time. And I wanted to study a society in transition, not recognizing that the United States was about to elect a black man to be president. In 2006, I went to Northern Ireland. So there you go. Sometimes we have to get out of, away from what's too close to us. Who knew? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah. So so I had the theory, but I really I wanted to go back. I wanted to learn about this place more, but I didn't. I'll say I didn't. Perhaps do the kind of homework I should have. But maybe this is the, the what I had to learn. You have you can only learn by living in a place. Mm-hmm. I don't and, and really experiencing what it means what it is to be an outsider and to come in. What it means to come into a, a, a society that has been overstudied, if you will. Mm. So Northern Ireland is the most studied region in, in English in the world. I would imagine, my guess is that Rwanda would be the French speaking, right? So there's a history of well-intentioned and perhaps not so well-intentioned um, doctoral students, uh, academics, practitioners coming into Northern Ireland from the U.S. and the U.K. primarily, but from all over, right? Mm. Australia, too, I imagine, um, English speaking, with our good ideas that we want to try out, right? And so these people feel used and abused. 
uh, fair enough. So again, not being sensitive to that, I come in with my good ideas. And there is caution about people coming from outside and from academia. So I had, I had that challenge as well uh, to overcome. Um, but I did. I built relationships. I guess the one thing I knew ahead of time is that I didn't want to be somebody who was helicoptering in. I did want to live there. I wanted to go to university there. I wanted to be able to be, to at least be do, to do that and to really think about, okay, I'm not, I am trying out my good ideas or finding out if they're good ideas, but at least I wanted to, I wanted, I was trying to think in terms of to leave this place a little better sounds quite grandiose, doesn't it? But to leave something positive behind. I'll, mm. I'll say that, right? Um, I think leaving this place a little bit better in the sense of the scouts' idea of leaving the place. Leaving, leaving a place you've been a little bit cleaner. And I'm afraid to say probably I did leave a few f footprints. But maybe I left something good as well, I'd like to think, um, with the young people I worked with. So you had also asked me about the intergenerational part of the project. Should I go to that part now? Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, and I want to return to this idea of, of impact. But yes, let's. that would be great to hear because your design was so particular with mm -hmm. intergenerational and the people that you selected yeah. to work with on your project. So um, yeah, if you want to remark about that design. Yeah. Actually, that came out of, um, interestingly, I think, uh, I heard a hol uh, speak a Holocaust survivor who started a, pro a project at a high school in Long on Long Island where he partnered high school students who w were art majors um, with Holocaust survivors. And so there was this intergenerational project happening. And so the older people would tell their stories to the, to the high school students, and the art students would visually interpret or interpret visually the stories that they heard. And, and then they had an exhibition um, in, in, um, <clears throat> at a resource center that he, that he had some space in, um, in, a, uh, um, in a synagogue uh, in, on Long Island. And, and so I did actually go out to visit the show, to see one of his shows and everything. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting way of taking this idea of empathy and, um, and telling the story from the eye. Uh, one step further. And the I, you mean like personal... Personal story. First person first narrative. Person. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because there's also uh, what I knew about prior, so I kind of jumped ahead, but what I knew about prior to this, um, hearing about this project, was um, a, a human rights, a gender activity, a gender-based activity where men and women are partnered um, and, uh, a, and tell each other stories about a time when they've been uh, harassed or... Um, or in some way their, their rights have been um, infringed upon. You know, so that's a fancy way of saying right. harassment, um, been attacked perhaps, something like that, um, verbally and or physically. And then the man tells the woman's story from the eye. Mm. So it's no longer this happened to Naomi, for example. This, this happened to me. Mm -hmm. and, he, and the story is told publicly to a larger group. And so, um, and, that, and that's a powerful experience that's that can be visceral right when you're telling this as if it happened to, to you um, but then what will happen so in that same idea right what what happens when the artist is telling somebody else's story from the eye visually interpreting that story I thought so I thought that would be a really interesting approach to bring to Northern Ireland um, and then this idea of the intergenerational idea is also applicable there in the north because <clears throat> In, the, in this time of transition, um, 
there are older people in the North, grandparents age, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, who remember the Troubles, the height of the Troubles. And from the mid-60s into the 80s, um, where there was direct violence throughout the region, and, and, we, and also in the UK and, you know, in other parts of Europe. And they, and they lived this. Conversely, their grandchildren's generation, young people who at the time of my project were in their early 20s, 19 to early 20s, or late teens, early 20s, um, were growing up in Northern Ireland um, that was uh, post-1998 post Good Friday Agreement, much less direct violence, nearly no direct violence. All of the, the there were no more, um, uh, there were no, nobody was stopped in the streets anymore. People within reason could move freely, certainly in the, in the downtown areas, the areas that were designated neutral, in quotes, uh, people could move freely. Um, young people still went to school separately, and there's there still peace walls, but you really didn't experience direct violence. Um, as a young person growing up in the North, um, in, in, um, in the, the early part of the 21st century uh, in Northern Ireland. You, nothing like what your parents or your grandparents experienced. But at the same time, you didn't meet the other because it, was so highly, it is high, so highly segregated until you went to university, and then nobody talks about it. So, you, you, yeah. so I was interested in bringing these two generations together, one generation that has experienced direct violence but also lived in a much more integrated society than, the, than their younger counterparts. And then in these conflict resolution and storytelling workshops, everybody tells stories. But it was uh, the young, young people were all um, artists, or art students at my university. So that addressed the acad academia outsider problem, the challenge that I had, because here, here they were in academia too, right? They were undergraduates, and this is like, oh wow, this is great. We can be part of a, a doctoral project. We can find out what it is to do a PhD. Yes, we want to do this, and we want to exhibit in a gallery, right? So those were their carrots, if you will. And they wanted to hear the stories, because these are stories from the other religious ident identity group that they never got to hear because also that's taboo. Um, and for the older people, it was an opportunity to talk to, to young people who didn't have to listen to them. So that, that was like the universal reason. <laughs> like, this is great. We get to talk to these young people, and they don't have to be polite and listen to us. They want to be here. They want to hear our stories. Um, so that was great. And so um, what I'll be doing in the second part of my uh, workshop on, on next Thursday, the 26th, at the Sustainable Peace Conference, is I'll be showing the artwork that came out of our, our project. Wonderful. Um, and, um, and talking about it and telling the stories that um, were the inspiration for the, for the art. Wonderful. So to um, highlight that conference, too, that uh, the workshop that you're going to be doing at our conference, the Sustaining Peace Conference, is what you're referring to. Yes. And, yeah, it will be great to attend that workshop. I'm looking forward to being there and seeing those pictures and also learning more. So the title of that workshop is Storytelling in Context of Conflict. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, right. um, yes, and um, if anything, if anybody wants to hear me talk about this without a gravelly voice, I hope you'll come <laughs> to the workshop. <laughs> I'm so sorry about my cold. Um, Great. Um, well, we're glad to have you, even with your cold, and I don't think it 
the listeners might not be able to even tell, but um, <laughs> we are grateful for you coming in, despite the, the weather. Um, and I just wanted to ask you one more question, thinking mm-hmm. about your workshop, and um, revisit what you were talking about with your, your work in Northern Ireland, and the <coughs> impact that you were intending to have and saying that you wanted to leave it a little bit of a better place. Mm. Um, And thinking about our theme for the Sustaining Peace Conference on sustaining peace. Um, So there's so many, you know, today, different types of interventions and uh, happening for addressing conflict or trying to prevent conflict from happening or restoring after conflict happens. And I'm wondering how you see your work contributing to sustainable peace if you do yeah that's so big right um I'd like to think my teaching is that you know um so I the course I I teach at CUNY is called conflict resolution John Jay it's called um sociology of conflict but um not but and I teach it as, as a student of peace education, as a student of Betty Reardon, I teach that class, as a, I would say, as a peace education class. In other words, for me, it's not... The content is incredibly important, but if we don't live it, then why? So, and anyway, I would get depressed. If I spent an entire... If I spent four months, or really, what, nine months in the end, right? Eight months, nine months, only talking about the problems mm-hmm. and not talking about this what we can do about it, I would be incredibly depressed. So all the time that we're analyzing conflict, we, the, I, I, the experience I try to create in the classroom is of how we can be different together. So I really try to create community, uh, collaboration, that, um, that this, the students can, should, can and should think of themselves as each other as friends and resources, um, that they look to each other for help, that... Um, and I, I make a value judgment in the classroom that, that um, and in my life that nonviolence is, for myself, nonviolence is the only way. Mm. So whereas I do not, I do not, um, I cannot make a judgment of, about people who are living in different situations than I live, which is as in a very comfortable situation in New York, in the United States, I can make, I can say that I live this way and that I will teach this. <laughs> I can say that without making judgment about how other people make, have to make their choices. And, um, and that's what I teach in the classroom. So um, I would, I'd like to think that exposing CUNY students to both the skills to respond to conflict differently, um, perhaps differently than they have thought about before, perhaps not, but perhaps, and to develop with them the language to talk about the injustices that they see. And then also, okay, now what can we do about that? And that's a huge for, for four months. So um, I tell them, you know, I'm, we are planting seeds, and now it's for you to go off and to make those seeds grow. But... What I'm doing with you now is I'm planting seeds, and they can always email me and talk, call me, <laughs> on me, and yeah, like that. But I would, I'd like to think that that's where perhaps I'm making, if, if there's any, if so some kind of a sustainable difference. My my project in Northern Ireland, um, you know, I, I think for the young people involved, there were some individual 
differences. Like they started to teach other people that they knew mm-hmm. about listening better and about responding differently. And I think it was really, I know that it was really something for the older people to have their stories validated, legitimized at an institutional level in a gallery, like to walk in and see your story on a wall and to see your friend's stories on the wall, on walls, you know. Um, and then so, and so, yeah, so the artists, the young people brought their parents and their grandparents to see the exhibition, and the older people brought their children and grandchildren. So they, that, that intergenerational idea continued, right? Mm-hmm. But it was a small project. It was a doctoral project. Um, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a moment, right? Um, Thank you for sharing these experiences. <laughs> no, it's so great to hear your point of view, and it's, it's useful for one that brings a theoretical... Um, look and also some practice in peace and conflict and it is a big idea sustaining peace so it's so helpful to hear you know the way that you bring it to an individual level and how those things ripple out especially when we start thinking of systems lenses that Mm. it's kind of um, I found it troubling to think well where's the individual in that you know Mm -hmm. and so thank you for for sharing individuals in the community Mm-hmm. And it's so important to keep in mind this sort of thinking big and thinking small, you know, mm-hmm. and how do we maintain um, both or should we maintain both? So one last question sure. just to get a bit of advice and um, general pointers from you because as one who's so inspired by your work and um, Thank you. also working as an educator and researcher and bringing a... A profound interest in the arts and practicing arts myself. I'm, I'm interested if you have any pointers for individuals like myself hoping to have an impact um, and do original research in the field of conflict, mm-hmm. peace, and sustainability. Um, just any tips, almost like maybe a tweet, like 150. <laughs> I'll try to control myself. If you could. <laughs> I'll try to control myself. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm the one who should be re- giving recommendations to anybody. <laughs> um, I can tell you what I learned. Um, if I had it to do over, would that serve? Would as that you serve? like, as you like. Uh, what I, if I had it to do over, what I learned from my experience. Um, um, thank you. The thing is to keep in mind always that we are outsiders and we carry a lot of baggage coming from the United States with the best of intentions, right? So try to find a way to be an invited guest. Whenever have somebody in the community be willing to say, I invited you, yeah, you are, um, we would like to engage in a conversation with you, you know, so that we can learn together. And, and to call on, really involve, and in, be informed by the community. You know? So I, that was one of my challenges, right? One of the things I couldn't do, one of the things I couldn't do because I had to have thesis questions for a PhD. That's a, it's a unique uh, thing, right? I had to come in with my ideas and test them. That's what we do. Um, but 
a much more ethical way to work is to go be invited in and um, and sit down with people and say, okay, what? How can I help you? How can I how can I be of service to you? Mm. Um, and then to to work together to create um, a plan. So I think that if I had it to do over, I would try to find some way to make that work. Um, also, work with a pre-existing group. Try don't try to start from scratch. It's too hard, mm. <laughs> um, especially being from the outside, right? It's it's always better to have partners in the community who have established groups um, that you can work with. And um, food. Anytime you're bringing people together, have food there. <laughs> great, great. Food is a great way uh, to draw people in, get them to stay. But more importantly, a lot, something about food drops the formality. I love it. Right? That's great. And, um, and yeah. Well, speaking of which, um, we will have some food at the Sustaining Peace Conference. <laughs> we will have a um, some bites and coffee around 5 o'clock in Everett Lounge. And then also we will have a reception with wine and hors d'oeuvres after the keynotes um, at 8 o'clock in Everett Lounge. So um, look forward to having some food, hopefully, again mm-hmm. um, with you. And to continue the conversation. Thursday, yes, and continue the conversation. And um, thank you again so much for sharing your experiences and insights with me and with our listeners today. Um, again, this is the program sponsored by the AC4 and WKCR at Columbia, and it is called Conversations from the Leading Edge. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Strauss. Thank you for inviting me. And don't forget, all of our listeners, come see Professor Strauss's workshop, Storytelling on in Context of Conflict, on Thursday, March 26th at 4 p.m. in uh, Teachers College. Hope to see you all there and join in the discussion with you. Be well.